0: You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast, hosted by Shelley Wood.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April edition of Heart Sounds. I'm so excited that spring is finally springing. Even my own heart sounds happier these days. All of us here at TCTMD have had a month of mostly hunkering down at our desks, churning out a surprising range of stories. The only reporter in our team who hit the road this month was Yaël Maxwell, who checked out the Fellows' course in Orlando. If you're a fellow in training, I hope you've paid a visit to our Fellows Forum, which is a mix of news and views relevant for early career cardiologists. Of course, on the day this podcast airs, TCTMD reporter Laura McEwen, and yours truly, will be at the 2018 Sky meeting in San Diego. All Going to Plan will bring you highlights from Sky on this podcast next month. For now, let's have a listen to news that made headlines in April, and some of the -the behind-the-scenes conversations that TCTMD reporters managed to have in order to get the full scoop. Several stories we ran on TCTMD in recent weeks have looked in various ways at the double whammy of coronary artery disease and aortic stenosis in the era of transcatheter valve interventions. I myself covered a study looking at the striking rise in the proportion of patients undergoing TAVR who have had a prior CABG. Late last month, reporter Yael Maxwell covered a practical guide, published in Jack, that reviewed tips and techniques for treating coronary disease in patients who already have a TAVR device in place. This month, Yael revisited this topic, with a study that zoomed in on what operators are recognizing as an important yet underestimated complication following TAVR. As Yael wrote, delayed coronary obstruction is rare, but associated with an increased risk of death. Study author Azim Latib of San Rafael Scientific Institute in Milan told Yael that he became interested in this topic after having two patients who had undergone successful TAVR return to his lab with coronary occlusion. Both died shortly thereafter. In one of these patients, operators had actually taken the extra step of placing a coronary guide wire as a preventive measure during valve implantation. In a literature review that included over 17,000 patients, Latib and colleagues found that late coronary obstruction occurs in approximately 0.22% of patients, so very rare. But among those who developed this complication, more than half died in hospital. Yael's story reviews some of the apparent risk factors for delayed coronary obstruction, as well as work by another group of investigators. They've developed a method of lacerating the aortic leaflet prior to TAVR to help reduce the likelihood of obstructions occurring. I hope you'll check out Yael's story. For now, have a listen to Latib, reminding operators to be on the lookout for delayed coronary obstruction after TAVR.
2: I think in the past we didn't think this could happen, so when patients complain of symptoms post the TAVR, we, in our own minds as physicians, excluded this, so weren't too concerned. I think now that we know that this could happen, to have a low threshold for maybe doing a CTO a coronary angiogram and just making sure that nothing's changed with the coronary flow. Because, you know, it's something that we now know and we've documented can happen. Even though you had a patient with high-risk anatomical features, you know, even though the coronary flow looked great at the end of the procedure... It, they could still have off-guard instructions, so any change in symptoms in, in the first you know, week after the procedure needs to be taken at, then more seriously.
1: Earlier this month, I was excited to see some tweets about the upcoming ESC meeting in Munich. I mean, I'm not in a rush for ESC to get here, because then summer will be over. And that's too hard to think about while I can still see the snow line outside my office window. But I always enjoy covering the ESC and all going to plan, I'll be there again this year. One of these ESC tweets talked about how the layout for this year's Congress includes lots of green space. My first thought, and yes, I tweeted it, was, Oh great, this is where all the smokers will congregate. Go ahead and twell at me if you disagree. But the number of smokers at European cardiology congresses continues to flabbergast me, particularly the younger smokers. In case you're wondering where I'm going with this, let me steer you back to news coverage this month on TCTMD. Laura McEwen covered a paper published in the journal Stroke that looked at young and middle-aged men and the number of cigarettes they smoke in relation to the risk of stroke. Lead author Janina Markadan, a med student from the University of Maryland in Baltimore, found that for the heaviest smokers, those puffing away on at least two packs a day, the risk of ischemic stroke was more than five times higher than that of someone who had never smoked. In an ideal world, Markadon told TCTMD, people would never start smoking in the first place, and if they did start, they'd quit right away. However, she said, if a patient isn't ready or willing to quit today, they can still get benefits from just smoking less until they're ready to drop cigarettes entirely. Find Laura's story to get the details, but a key issue here was the age of the smokers studied, all of them under age 50. As a group, current smokers were more likely to have had a stroke than non-smokers, and the number of cigarettes smoked increased that risk. Laura interviewed Andrew Russman from the Cleveland Clinic, who was not involved in the study. He said the data, quote, fills some gaps by focusing on younger men, since other research looking at younger female smokers is complicated by the use of oral contraception. Russman agreed that there is some data to support the idea that risks associated with smoking are to some degree dose-dependent, but he disagreed with the author's conclusion that cutting back is a good message for young people. Here's what he told Laura.
2: That all
0: makes sense, okay? But what doesn't make sense is just reduce your risk of smoking, and that's, that's probably okay by reducing your, your amount of smoking, and I think that's a bad message to send and really want to send the message that you need to quit smoking because this study, despite what they said in their conclusions, did not actually study the idea of reducing smoking as a means of reducing stroke risk. All they studied is that people,
2: that there's a dose-dependent increase in risk.
1: This past month has seen another wave of social media sparring, some of it, Well, sociable, some of it a little less so. This time, the topic shaking the trees of Cardio Twitter was the use of the Impella, Percutaneous Ventricular Assist Device in Acute MI with Cardiogenic Shock, or AMEX. Part of the discussion was fueled by a story written by TCTMD's Caitlin Cox, which delved into an analysis led by Bill O'Neill of Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. The study was published in the American Heart Journal and looked at outcomes among every single patient with Amex who has been treated with Impella within a nationwide registry initiated by the manufacturer Abiomed between 2009 and 2016. According to O'Neill and his co-authors, more than 15,000 patients have received an Impella from one of 1,010 US hospitals in this period. Devices include the Impella CP 2.5 and 5.0 device. Overall, 51% of patients survived to explantation of their device. Moreover, survival tracked with volume. The more devices a center used, the higher the survival numbers at their institution. Here's part of O'Neill's conversation with Caitlin. We've been seeing
2: some pretty uh, dramatic, life-saving results, stuff that I haven't seen before. Uh, I started doing angioplasty encouraging extract in 1984, and at that time we had a 50% survival. So mm-hmm. between now and then, if you do angiopressy with a one-pump, you get a 50% survival. Uh, so mm-hmm. my answer to the credits is to say, okay, if you're, if you're happy with your outcomes and shocked then that's fine, do what you're doing, you know, go for it and pat on the back. But if you're dissatisfied with a 50% survival and you have to find something new and mm-hmm. something better, and that's what we think Impel is going to give.
1: The problem with this perspective, as the Twitter debate will tell you, is that there have been no large randomized clinical trials to show that the Impella truly offers a benefit in Amex. William Suh, who was also quoted in Caitlin's story, pointed out that there are risks to using certain Impella devices, and without clear-cut trials, it's impossible to tell whether patients are being helped or harmed. Caitlin has actually been following up on some of these issues with Abiomed, so stay tuned for more from Caitlin. But she also put it to O'Neill, who didn't think it was too late to do a trial. In fact, he thought quite the opposite. Have a listen.
2: It's really too early to do a randomized trial. The the data from this National Register shows that there's a huge variation in outcome and in practice i mean if, if physicians can't agree that they're going to use right heart cath early and do the procedure early then it's really what are you going to randomize to and, and, the, and the real real problem with doing a randomized trial right now is that the therapy hasn't been fully uh developed so um you could do a randomized trial of a technique that's outdated by the time the study is completed
1: So, on the one hand, you have expensive, high-tech interventions that have not been definitively studied, some people swear by their efficacy, others aren't convinced. On the other hand, you have simpler tactics that have been proven time and again to be effective and they're just not being discussed. Earlier this month, the AHA put out a scientific statement reminding everyone about the body of evidence supporting the role of exercise in preventing cardiovascular diseases and many other chronic conditions. The problem? Physicians just can't get the hang of discussing physical activity with their patients. According to the AHA, four out of five Americans don't meet or even come close to the recommendations set by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services for physical activity. The cost of this inactivity is estimated at $120 billion per year. Todd spoke with Philippe Lobello of Emory University in Atlanta, who chaired the writing committee for this document, which he described as a call to action. Lobello points out that it's not as if physicians don't want to talk about keeping active with patients, they just don't have the tools or the incentives. Have a listen to part of what Labello told Todd.
2: Physical activity still has not been elevated, if you will, to the level of other risk factors. In essence, again, everyone agrees philosophically that it's important, but since our healthcare system is more geared toward managing disease, managing you know, objective risk factors that you can measure, like blood pressure or uh, cholesterol, behavioral risk factors are typically not addressed. Uh, You know, this happens for physical activity, but it also happens for diet or for sleep. It's a systemic issue. You know, uh, clinicians don't get training on uh, assessment of physical activity or counseling on physical activity. The healthcare system typically, uh, although it's changing, typically doesn't reimburse physicians to counseling on physical activity is not part of electronic medical records. So, you know, there's a number of systemic barriers that sort of make it uh, less likely for it to become standard of practice.
1: Late last month, TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon did a story about a trial that has for years been cited as the study that will once and for all answer questions about the role of ischemia-guided revascularization in the setting of stable coronary disease. Mike's feature on the NIH-sponsored ischemia trial went live just as last month's podcast was going to air, but proved one of the most clicked stories throughout the month of April. Ischemia has been years in the making, battling slow enrollment and a lack of equipoise in the medical community. It will be yet another year now before patient follow-up is complete, but the trial has been in the news for weeks because of some late-in-the-game changes to the study design that sparked a very public debate between ischemia investigators and their critics. As you've likely heard, the study's primary endpoint has been changed five years after the trial's launch to include not just cardiovascular death and MI, as it had been initially, but also resuscitated cardiac arrest, hospitalization for unstable angina, and hospitalization for heart failure. Many people found out about that change by reading a perspective in circulation, cardiovascular quality and outcomes. It was written by a group in the UK that accused investigators of, quote, moving the goalposts, essentially diluting the hard endpoints with something softer and potentially open to influence by physician biases. Mike called up trial investigators for their response. They were quick to point out that these changes were, in fact, part of the study's protocol from the outset. Have a listen to Bill Bowden of the VA New England Healthcare System in Boston. Full disclosure, I've stitched a few pieces of audio together here so you get his full explanation.
0: When we first submitted the grant in 2011, you know, there was active discussion at that point of uh, a two component, a three component, and a five component primary endpoint. But when we submitted it with the original sample size estimate of 8,000 patients, uh, we felt that we had. Or would have sufficient power to address uh, the study hypothesis with a two-component endpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but early in the study, uh, and I, I want to say this was in 2012, early 2012, as we were preparing, you know, the statistical analysis plan or the SAP, you know, we we obviously recognized that in many clinical trials that have been conducted over the last uh, 10 or 15 years that we might not have sufficient endpoints uh, in order to preserve power of the trial. So uh, the trial was really designed to optimize precision around the point estimates for the outcomes that were deemed most important, you know, both to patients and clinicians. uh, And and so uh, at at that point, uh, the the NIH uh, recommended that we convene uh, or appoint an independent advisory panel uh, and this was, um, to, uh, to look at, uh, pre-specifying a primary endpoint change, uh, from a two component to a five component endpoint in the event that our, you know, interim looks at the event, aggregate event rates, uh, that the DSMB had access to were, you know, either, you know, on the mark or, mm-hmm. you know, short on the mark, so to speak.
1: Pre-specified or not, the changes have reignited debate over whether ischemia is going to get to the bottom of a question that has dogged stable coronary artery disease research for more than a decade. The trial itself has cost tens of millions of dollars, and people quoted in Mike's story use words like tragic to describe how disappointed they'll be if this new, softer primary endpoint is ischemia's best answer. Take a step back for a moment and think about this. Academics are squabbling about ischemia's endpoints on social media and debating the issues at major meetings. Meanwhile the investigators are damned if they do and damned if they don't. Keep in mind, for the trial to actually get enough statistical power to definitively answer the death am I question, more people, those same good people who volunteered to be included in this hugely important trial in the first place, will need to have heart attacks or they'll need to die. I'm going to leave it there for the April 2018 edition of Heart Sounds. I have to get this audio to the fine folks who produce this podcast for TCTMD and then pack my bags for Sky. I swear, if I look out the window in my San Diego hotel and I see anything resembling a snow line, I don't know what I'll do. That's your friendly reminder to check out our coverage from Sky in the days to come. As we head into May, things really start heating up, conference-wise, for the TCTMD news team. We have Yael Maxwell covering the European Atherosclerosis Society meeting in Lisbon at the beginning of the month. Shortly thereafter, Todd Neal heads out to the Heart Rhythm Society meeting in Boston. May 22nd, most of the TCTMD news team will be on the ground at EuroPCR. If you're heading to any of these meetings and want to give us a heads up about something you'll be presenting, or anything else in the programs worth flagging, let us know. You can find me and all the other TCTMD reporters on Twitter or track down our bios on tctmd.com. Drop me a line to tell me what you like or don't like about heart sounds. I'm all ears. Speaking of ears, thanks for listening.